One of the most hope-filled concepts in Scripture is knowing that God listens to His own. Hi, this is Him We Proclaim with Dr. John Fonville. When we call in the name of the Lord, He promises to answer us. This act of worship is called invocation, and it's where worship begins. Let's continue now with the gift giver in his gathered guest study with a message called The Hope of Invocation, Part 1. We're going to look this week at the different elements that make up corporate worship. So as we get started, let me ask you this question. What are we to do when we come together? What are we to do? Um, What is our church service supposed to look like? What may we legitimately regard as a biblical liturgy and an order of service? You see, these questions are of utmost importance. Uh, Pastors and theologians who planned out the historic Christian liturgies of the church, they gave very careful attention and much thought to these questions and to the worship service itself. This is certainly true of the Reformers because we learned that the true worship of God and the knowledge of salvation were the heart and soul of the Reformation. John Calvin, throughout his entire ministry, was preeminently concerned with the worship of God's people. But regrettably, this is not always the case today in the church. The reformers and their heirs were very intentional about the development and meaning of the church's worship, but we don't see that as much, regrettably, today. Um, I've mentioned him before, uh, Glenn Packiam. Have you guys ever heard of the Desperation Band? Great, great band. They put out some good music. Uh, Glenn Packiam is a former member of that band. He's now a pastor of New Life downtown in um, Colorado Springs, Colorado. Nice place. I used to live out there. Um, listen to what he laments, because he used to be in the heart of all this uh, contemporary worship and everything. Listen to what he laments now. He says, quote, It is a tragedy that our worship leaders and tech leaders and pastors could tell you more about pop culture then they could tell you about the historic liturgies of the church, end quote. He's exactly right. Uh, Michael Horton, one of my professors and a good friend, um, he has written a book called A Better Way. It's a very good book on the church's worship. Very helpful. Listen to what he writes. He, he says a similar thing to what Glenn Packiam was saying about today's uh, contemporary worship in the church. He not as a style, but contemporary. We're not back in the Reformation days 500 years ago. That's what I mean by that. But Michael Horton, he's lamenting the same thing, and he says, quote, despite a rich Protestant liturgical inheritance, our churches, regardless of where they are on the spectrum, traditional versus contemporary and everything in between, he says these churches seem to give too little attention to why we do what we do. He says, in many cases, hours are spent, hopefully, in preparing a sermon, but the rest of the service may be haphazard and lack a clear sense of movement from point A to point Z. And then he continues. He says, we are familiar with services that begin with miscellaneous introductions and announcements. Next, 
the choir sings, if you have a choir, right? we don't have a choir, there's no place to put a choir, but um, next the choir sings and perhaps provides background to special music of some sort, followed by a congregational song and offering more singing, a sermon, more singing, or a special music, and then a much-anticipated benediction. That's kind of how I grew up. And then he concludes this. He says that worship service should be interesting. We are meeting with God after all, right? And he says, and it will be interesting if ministers in their congregations are intentional about its development and meaning. But whether contemporary or traditional, worship will become a boring purposeless routine if that is in fact what is unintentionally conveyed in its preparation. He's exactly right. We don't want here at Paramount to be haphazard and purposeless. We want to be intentional and thoughtful as to what our service is supposed to look like. And so with that in mind, what is our church service supposed to look like? What may we legitimately regard as a biblical liturgy or order of service? There are two main divisions of the worship service. You have the service or the liturgy of the word, and then you have the service or liturgy of the sacrament. Sometimes it was referred in church history to the liturgy of the upper room. Um, It was simply referred to to the liturgy of the upper room because it was trying to tell you when and where Jesus fulfilled Passover and instituted the Lord's Supper and the New Covenant. So you have this twofold division of the service of the word and the service of the liturgy. And then when you look at the service of the word and the service of the liturgy, there are elements that go in these twofold divisions. And so we want to take a look at what these elements are that constitute the true worship of God. What are the necessary elements that go within this framework of the liturgy of the word and the liturgy of the sacrament? Incidentally, by the way, if you look at John Knox's liturgy of the word from Scotland, his liturgy of the word took about an hour And then he did the liturgy of the sacrament after that. And so we get so hung up in our culture about time. Oh my goodness, it's 10 minutes till 12. John's not quite done. You know, if you go back, they weren't really as concerned about that. Calvin's liturgies in Geneva began at 4 a.m. for the servants. That was his first service. And he conducted seven of them every Sunday. Last service, I believe, ending at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, and then you had the evening, too. So we're not going to start at 4 a.m., although I, have, I was with Kevin this week. Kevin, is, his family's from uh, South Korea. I have been to South Korea. I've preached throughout South Korea, and their worship services do start at 4 a.m., and I have attended those, but I was about half asleep, <laughs> feeling very convicted. Why am I up there on this platform getting ready to preach to people, to 3,000 people, praying at the top of their lungs? I mean, I have nothing to say. to you. Like, What are you doing here? It felt very small. But the point is, is that you have the liturgy of the word, the liturgy of the sacrament, And what goes into that really matters. 
and the order and the progression and the rhythm and the flow of the whole service, it really matters. And so what we're going to do beginning this week, we're just going to take you, I'm just going to take you through the order and flow of our service and to explain to you from scripture and church history why it is we do what we do, where we do it, and how we do it. Because we're not making these things up. My job in this church is not to be an innovator. My job is to be a faithful excavator and deliver that to you. When does a worship service begin? When does it begin? The worship service does not begin with the welcome. We do that here every week. Hey, everybody, it's great to see you. Just stand up a minute, take a moment, Mac did it this morning. Just say hi to somebody that you don't know, welcome each other, say hello. That's not when the worship service begins. The worship service doesn't begin with announcements. The worship service doesn't begin, if you grew up like I did, with an organ in the church, with the start of the prelude, where the organ's just kind of got that low rumble sound. You know, remember that? Did anybody grow up with the organ? It's just got that low rumble sound going on. It's like, that's not when it starts either. Um, The Lord's Supper, in contemporary fashion, doesn't start at the conclusion of a band jamming out to pre-service music. I've been to churches where, I mean, it's like you're at a rock concert. The subs are turned up so loud, you can feel it. It's not the Holy Spirit, it's it's sound waves. (laughs) Um, That's not when the service begins. The service doesn't begin after a clever multimedia presentation. I've been to churches where you walk in, the the whole place goes completely dark, and up on the screen in front of you is this giant, you know, HD screen, and there's just cool, clever, slick multimedia presentation, just boom, and it just hits you. That's not when the church service begins. When does the worship of the church begin? Worship begins at the prayer of invocation. That's when it begins. You see, our lives are meant to be lived in invocation. So what then is an invocation? An invocation, this is interesting. I think you'll find this interesting. An invocation is actually a political act. It comes from the realm of international politics. Some good things can come from politics. I'll just leave it at that. Um, An invocation is actually a political act set within the covenantal framework of the scriptures. Let me explain to you. In the ancient Near East, back when, uh, you know, Abraham was living, and even before Abraham, way even before Abraham, In the ancient Near East, you had a lesser king called a vassal. And this lesser king who was a vassal would enter into an international peace treaty of sorts with a greater king who was called a suzerain. And he would enter into this international peace treaty with this suzerain for protection from foreign invaders. So whenever, when, whenever this vassal would be in trouble, this lesser king would be in trouble, he would call upon or he would invoke the name of a greater king, the suzerain, when he was threatened by these invading powers. And so invoking the help of the greater king, the suzerain, is like pulling a fire alarm on the wall of a building. Help, 
We're in peril. We're in trouble. Come, rescue. And so what we have is, is that by the terms of the treaty, which was a covenant, the suzerain, the greater king, would respond and rescue the vassal, the lesser king, from impending doom. And when he would rescue them, they would be his people, and the suzerain would be their great king, their rescuer. They would be his people, and he would be their suzerain king. Sound familiar? What is the essence of the covenant of grace repeated from Genesis to Revelation? I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And so the covenantal framework or treaty structure of the Bible is very clear, or it should be. The Bible is a covenant charter, a treaty, an international peace treaty, and within it, there are smaller covenantal units or covenants. And so the worship service has this covenantal structure from the very beginning. Now, there are many examples of invocations in Scripture, I just want to highlight to you three important truths about invocation. Just three, because there's many. Here's the first important truth about invocation and worship. Invocation embraces and preserves the true worship of God. All true worship of God is gone unless God's name is called upon alone. There is no true worship of God where that doesn't take place. Now, the earliest invocation that we find in Scripture is Genesis chapter 4 and verse 26. So this is the earliest invocation in Scripture. Now, after the fall of man into sin, listen to what the Scriptures say at the end of verse 26. Well, let's just read the whole verse so you get a little more context. It says in verse 26, it says, To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh, At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. So calling upon the name of the Lord embraces generally the whole worship of God. Calling upon the name of the Lord is the spiritual worship of God, which is produced through genuine saving faith. The prayer of invocation is the offspring of faith, calling upon the name of the Lord, invoking this greater suzerain, calling for his help, is produced from genuine saving faith. It is the offspring of faith. Listen to John Calvin as he explains the significance of invocation. He says this, he says, Satan contrives nothing with greater care than to adulterate with every possible corruption the pure invocation of God. He says he wants to draw us away from the only God to the invocation of creatures. Even from the beginning of the world, He has not ceased to move this stone that miserable men might weary themselves in vain in a preposterous worship of God. He says, but let us know that the entire pomp of adoration is nothing worth unless this chief point of worshiping God aright being maintained. Lose the proper invocation of the true God and you do not have worship. 
So what is Moses telling us here in Genesis 4, 26? Well, let me give you some context. After the fall of man into sin in Genesis chapter 3, the worship of God had become corrupted. It had become so corrupted that Genesis account tells us that only a small remnant of true worshipers remained on this earth. Genesis tells us that only Adam and Eve and a few other of their offspring, which came from the godly line of Seth, were true worshipers of God after the fall. A very tiny remnant. And Genesis 4.26 tells us that through the godly line of Seth, who came from Adam and Eve, the face of the church began to distinctly appear once again, and that the worship of God was set up to continue to posterity, to the offspring of Seth. Who is that posterity? It is you and I here today. We are this posterity And through the invocation of the Lord's name in corporate worship, each week as we begin worship, the face of the church, the true church, is distinctly displayed to the world. And the spiritual worship of God, which faith produces, is embraced and maintained week after week through invocation of the Lord's name. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 2, Paul addresses the church in Corinth, and listen to how he addresses the church in Corinth. He says, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Where the true church is displayed is where they call upon the name of the Lord. And that's what was happening right here in Genesis immediately after the fall. So in following Genesis chapter 4, verse 26, we continue to see invocations throughout all the scriptures after the fall, men calling upon the great king, the suzerain, come rescue me, come help me, deliver me, save us. They're in circumstances where God's people are crying out to the Lord for rescue. Where do we see it again in church or in biblical redemptive history? Look over at Exodus chapter 3. And let's look at verses 7 through 9. In Exodus chapter 3, verses 7 through 9, we find the people of Israel in bondage and in slavery in Egypt. And because of this, the Lord says to Moses in verse 7, listen to what he says. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and listen, and have heard their cry. Because of their taskmasters, I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians, and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the places of the Canaanites, and the Hittites, and the Amorites, and the Perizzites, and the Hivites, and the Jebusites." Look at verse 9. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me. And I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. 
And so God's people are crying out for deliverance from bondage and slavery. And God says he hears them and he responds and sees and comes and delivers. The great suzerain comes to the rescue when God's people pull the fire alarm. Now, invocations abound in the Psalms, and we could look at them all morning, but for the sake of time, let me just give you one example from our weekly liturgy that we use every week that you pray every single week that comes from Psalm 109, verse 26. And this is what David prays. It's a very simple prayer. It's not complicated. Help me, O Lord my God. Save me according to your steadfast love. That's invocation. David is crying out for deliverance from the Lord, and his cry for deliverance, his invoking the name of God for deliverance, is based on the steadfast love of God. What if we define God's steadfast love? When you read that phrase, steadfast love, what does it mean? Listen carefully. It's very simple. Remember the covenantal structure of the Bible? God's a covenant-keeping God. He's a covenant-making God, a covenant-promising God. God makes a covenant, a promise. He always keeps it. He's eternally faithful. He'll never, ever renege on it. He'll always fulfill it on your behalf period. That's steadfast love. And David invokes God's deliverance on the basis of his covenant-keeping faithful promises. That's how we invoke God. It's called grace. It is the Lord's steadfast love for us that gives us comfort, we'll come back to that, and confidence to trust him when doubts arise in our minds concerning his mercy and goodness towards us. How do we know God has steadfast love? Because we can read from Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, all the way to the end of the consummation in Revelation 21 and 22, God forever has been faithful in history to keep his promise every single time. And so when we are overwhelmed by the enemy of our faith, when we are overwhelmed by our sinful flesh, when we are overwhelmed by the wiles of this world and the evil of this world, it's easy to lose assurance of God's goodwill and favor towards us. And so like David, we are instructed each week in the liturgy, how do we appeal to God for deliverance? How do we come and invoke him on the basis of his covenant faithfulness, his steadfast love? That's how we learn to pray. And so this repetition of invocation and worship teaches us every week from the very start of the service to direct our faith to the Lord alone. And when we do that, we are embracing and we are preserving the true worship of God. So invocation is quite important, isn't it? Here's the second thing about invocation. Invocation glorifies the Lord. Invocation is an act of glorifying God in public worship. Listen to Psalm 50, verse 15. The psalmist declares, call upon me in the day of trouble. Invoke me. 
invocation. Call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. Isn't that great? Here we have a call to invocation. We have a promise of it being answered. And we have the goal to which it leads to. The psalmist says for the invocation is constituting a principal part of divine worship. When we invoke the name of the Lord in a time of trouble and affliction, we glorify the Lord because we are publicly testifying of his deliverance that he alone can give. It's a powerful way to glorify the Lord publicly in worship. Listen to Romans chapter 10, verse 13, where the Apostle Paul is speaking of invocation. And listen to this sure promise that he gives to us when we invoke the Lord. He says, quote, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's invocation. The gospel trains our hearts to call upon God's name. Thanks, John. You just heard a message called The Hope of Invocation, Part 1. More from the Gift Giver series coming up next time. The heart of Him We Proclaim is to bring you the gospel of good news each weekday. With each message, our prayer is you would hear, believe, and enjoy the gospel in your life. If you want to re-listen to or share any of these messages, you can find our smartphone app or locate our podcast by searching for Dr. John Fonville or Him We Proclaim. Him We Proclaim is a broadcast of Dr. John Fonville. If you would like to learn more about his local church in Jacksonville, Florida, you can visit ParamountChurch.com. Thanks for listening, and we hope you'll join us next time.